Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Beedratty. Obviously, Beedratty's been a big sponsor of the show for a long time, one of our earliest sponsors. Uh, they have a new product line, the, the Beedratty Sport. So they've really taken their time developing this line. Uh, it's not your typical tech fabric. They, you know, kind of scoured the earth for the best fibers, and they have. You know, not only polos, which they had last year, but they also now have the Blair Pullover. Um, They have many, many different sport lines. I highly recommend these as we get kind of towards the summer months. And they're they're good for other activities, too. I mean, you could play tennis in these things. You could could go for a jog. You can mow the lawn in them. Like, you don't have to worry about, you know, getting sweaty and, and ruining... You know, your favorite polo, like these are these are built for that. So definitely check out the sport line at beedratty.com. If you use the uh, promo code FRIEDEGG25, you'll get 25% off your order. So check out the sport line at uh, beedratty.com, and thanks for the support. Today's episode is with golf course architect Scott Sherman. Uh, Scott has had a long career in golf architecture, that has seen him work for a number of uh, different architects, including Pete Dye, uh, Bobby Weed, and now, most recently, he is uh, partnered with the Loves, Davis and Mark Love. Uh, and one of the recent projects that he has finished uh, is the Ocean Course. Uh, he worked with the resort and worked with the team, uh, with uh, Jeff Stone and the maintenance team at the Ocean Course to add some new tees tweak some existing tees for this PGA championship as well as move some trees around and uh, kind of get some design features back on that golf course that had uh, had gone away. So we talked uh, with Scott a lot about the ocean course as well as the opening of Belmont Golf Course in Richmond, Virginia. Belmont is a uh, A.W. Tillinghast Donald Ross course that has been converted uh, into a first tee facility, uh, with their, you know, restoring 12 of the original holes out there, as well as building a six hole short course and a a large driving range on the 18 hole facility. So we talk about that project and the work that went into that. So without further ado, we've got the PGA championship coming up next week. This is a talk with Scott that should get you a little primed about the, uh, the golf course. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. What was the first time you saw Kilo Island? Well, the first time I saw it would have been in uh, 1989. Uh, I went there. We went there as a family, uh, my wife and I and her family, partly because it was under construction. And I'll never forget my father-in-law and I tried to, and I had just been married several months before. We tried to ride uh, our bikes down a sand road, the, the now entry road, all the way down to the to the golf course and it was so soft we gave up and we uh <laughs> decided well we'll go out on the beach because we know the sand is hard 
And so we found our way to the beach and then rode up until we saw construction. And, and we came into the golf course at what is now 14 green, roughly. Mm-hmm. And doggone, it was like the surface of the moon, to be honest. Uh, just at that stage, it was just all sand everywhere. Uh, hurricane, I'm trying to think. Hugo had probably not hit yet. Yeah, that's um, what I was going to ask. That By the timeline, that would probably be before Hugo. That's right, um, because it was later in the year, and we went during the summer, I'm fairly certain. Um, and so that was my first uh, introduction there. And uh, Pete was not there. Alice was there, thereabouts somewhere. But I, I met several of the guys that, um, that were working there. Uh, and, and that's an ironic story, too, because I ended up working with those guys elsewhere in the fu- future dates. Uh, not too long after that. And they got me in touch with Miss Alice, who she and Pete were uh, living there in a condo somewhere. And I still have the letter that she sent back to me. Uh, We actually sent letters back and forth in those days. Mm -hmm. Um, And she suggested uh, a a way for me to, you know, work for the Dye family and and turn me on to Perry Dye, uh, who was in Denver. And uh, anyway, that was uh, sort of the the start of me getting to know Miss Alice and then eventually Perry and Pete and PB and Roy Dye, uh, Perry's uh, brother, uh, et cetera. And so that led to a job with with the, the Dye family uh, starting in 1990. Is that how you got into golf architecture? Y- yes and no. Uh, it, it's sort of an interesting story. My dad was a friend of a golf architect uh, here in Greenville, actually, who worked for George Cobb. Um, I, I knew at some point that I wanted to be in the golf business. Uh, I played high school golf with a guy named Chris Patton, who won the U.S. Amateur. Oh, yeah. And the first time I saw him hit a golf ball, he was in the eighth grade, I think. I said to myself, you know, I'm not going to be playing golf and, and, and feed myself. So I got to think of something else. And so through high school, I really didn't have that feel. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. But I had always drawn golf holes. Even as a child in church, I drew golf holes on the offering envelopes and so it was something that was in my brain and slowly but surely as I got to college and I sort of worked it out in my head, hey, this is something I might want to do. And I attended my first master's tournament in 1986, uh, the Saturday, and saw Jack Nicholas and saw Augusta National for the first time. And it just sort of crystallized for me uh, what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure how to go about it, but uh, John LaFoy longtime friend of mine and a guy named Tom Marzoff who works for Tom Fazio. They both lived here and they sort of patted me on the head and said, here's what you should do. And so I did a few things to sort of prepare myself and I'll never forget. My wife and I went to the uh, tour championship um, at Harbortown and um, I had never been at Harbortown. And we walked the golf course. And after the 14th hole, there used to be a pot bunker left of that green that was just mean. There was a ladder. I said to myself, I need to go meet Pete Dye somehow. And, and found him eventually uh, and found Miss Alice at the ocean course. So it's sort of a circle of life thing. Um, just one thing sort of led to another. Mm-hmm. So you've been you've been working with the uh, with the Loves uh, Love Design Group, and yes. uh, you also are doing you did the you know renovation work with new tees and some restoration work at at the Ocean Course in prep for right. this this tournament. Obviously, you know you saw 
the ocean course at its earliest stages. How would you say that the the course has evolved uh, since you know the early days to what it is today? Well, my goodness. So we're thirty years from construction, mm-hmm. um, and you, you know Pete said it best. And needless to say, Pete is the architect, the brains behind it. I you know Pete was not well when I helped do some work there with the team at Kiowa, big team of folks. Uh, but with Pete's absence, I just sort of had to keep the team together and help them out. But uh, the, the Kiowa folks were, were great. But as Pete would say, you know, that golf course walks or moves more than any other. Um, so one of the things we did was looked at a number of uh, old slides. They were actually slides and we had a slide projector. And we would look at the slides in the office of Stephen Youngner, who is the head professional and sort of look back during some construction photographs and also uh, during the Ryder Cup and just try to get, again, a feel for the place and it has changed so much. You know, it was a very difficult golf course for the Ryder Cup as as Pete was tasked to do, build the toughest golf course you can think of. And there was just a a lot of native, a lot of sand, a lot of things to avoid. And, you know, once that tournament went through, there was a need for the resort to get players around. And I'm not exactly sure when this occurred, maybe after the current owner uh, bought the resort or bought the golf courses, but some widening took place uh, all, all the while still a difficult golf course hosting world cups and senior PGAs and obviously the PGA back in 2012. So what we tried to do was obviously we had to deal with some land. Uh, Carrie Haig said, hey, we've got several golf holes, and I have a list here, that need to remain on par fours, uh, depending on the wind conditions. So we had, we, we went back to 520-plus on some of these long par fours. So that's an evolution. Um, and we tried to put back some of the sandy, duny areas. We chunked in. There were so many dune plants that, you know, Pete had planted 30 years ago that had taken over, sea oats, et cetera. Um, so we tried to expose some sand and bring it a little bit more in play here, there, and yonder. There were a few, um, I would call blowout bunkers originally. And so we were able to put some of those back. I mean, they had been there. They were just grown over and we exposed these blowout bunkers. I can think of hole number seven and a couple others. Um, and they'd lost some trees over time. So we actually moved some very large oak trees onto, into several golf holes from other golf holes. Rory's tree being one of those. The, the, the tree in the middle of three fairway is, is a, quote, new tree from 2019, and it came from the sixth hole. Uh, and it's better than ever, I, and I'll diverge a little bit. I, I always said since that tree got placed, I wish Pete could have seen it because it's, it really fits well and looks better than ever. Um, and so we just tried to restore aspects of it. Um, now, Carrie's focus to some degree was getting uh, gallery around uh, and shifting some gallery so that we could use some of the back tees that we weren't able or that they weren't able to use back in the 12 PGA. Uh, so we did some flip-flopping and going backwards and building some dunes and putting some tees on them, sort of like uh, hole number six is quite a far back tee. It's quite elevated now and you can see the ocean and the clubhouse from there. And there's other examples of that. So again, just trying to expose some of the natives, some of the sand, move some natives around, 
um, restore some bunkers that were not uh, uh, available to us anymore visually and strategically. And then we did some, some changes, for example, to number seven, some slight changes that were a little bit more in keeping with Pete's changes to holes like nine and, and 18 over the years. And as you know, Pete tinkers, and he tinkered with that golf course over the years in preparation for major events. Uh, so we tried to, he's our architect. We're, we're, we're doing what, what he would want, I believe. And Roger Warren and the whole team was right there every step of the way. And we, you know, we put it all, all back as best as we could. And I'm just part of that team. Mm-hmm. How, uh, how will seven play differently with the changes? Well, you know, one of the things that Pete did uh, is, um, let's say, on number 18, I, I would call them nooks and hooks that he put, let's say, in the big bunker left of the green. So we just added some nooks and hooks that sort of reflected that look. Um, and it, it was it, it's a little bit more penal. You know, if you try to cut that corner, it's a left to right tee shot uh, for that par five. And if you cut that corner, you might, might be in some of the nooks and hooks which was one of his evolutions, something he added to golf courses a little bit later in his career. Um, so you got to be careful. And, of course, if you blow it left, that's not the strategic side. And, and, and if you hit it too far left, you may be in a couple of our new blowout bunkers that are sort of long and left. Um, so, you know, wind will drive everything. We'll dictate everything there. And uh, for, for Mr. Goodwin's sake, we're praying for a little bit of wind because it will make up for a much more interesting uh, event, which we think will will happen in May. Yeah, I mean, I can't have much less wind than it had in that August date uh, in 2012. It, it obviously blew, and it was it was a crazy Friday. But outside of that, it was it was pretty tame, and right. uh, and rain, uh, you know, also softened the course. And this year, leading in, it's been almost a drought down there. So we right. should see a lot different playing conditions, uh, at least even if we, if we get a little bit of rain. Um, with regards to the ocean course, uh, you know, one of the things I think that stands out at the ocean course is the shaping and uh, the, mm-hmm. the work that was done. You know, it, it's a it's a very artistic look. It obviously is not like your naturalistic look of minimalism right. that's in vogue today. But at the same time, it's, it's not it doesn't at all look manufactured when you're out, you know, working on somebody else's golf course. How do you try and mimic that shaping and, and what stands out about the ocean course's shaping to you? So some of the discussions I had with Pete and Alice over the years, which were certainly nowhere near as, uh, 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 you know, many conversations as, as some folks, because I didn't work with Pete uh, dozens of times. I, I was fortunate to work with him maybe eight times or so. Uh, but I, I felt like I had a working knowledge and had seen so many of his golf courses and studied so many and worked on so many. I've, I've sort of seen the evolution a little bit and I've talked to him a little bit about the strategic evolution uh, of his golf courses. So the, the shaping aspect of it there was based on Miss Alice's idea to make sure you could see the ocean from every golf hole, tees, fairways, greens. And so the, the elevation of the golf course is very noticeable. They had lots of sand to work with um, and the steep and deep edges that are, you know, that Pete's known for, but yet not repetitive um, and, and not just perfect anything um, were something that, you know, I just tried to emulate. And he was one of the ones that said, you know, we're trying to create a third dimension, height, width, width and depth. 
you know, so it's not just a mound. It's got some dimension to it and some character to it. Um, and don't finish anything too perfect because, you know, nature's not going to be perfect. And you, even though it's a constructed environment, let's let's make it look like it's been eroded a little bit and not just perfect, perfect. That's that's an interesting, you know, thought of, uh, you know, not trying to make it, you know, I imagine in, in many cases you get in the field and everybody's trying, you know, those to make it look perfect. But the idea of not making it look perfect because, you know, nothing in nature is really perfect is is a really is one that kind of sticks out as, as a good thought. But correct. And we all the time coach our guys. And I've been fortunate to work with only a few golf course builders over the years and they perform really well. And we've always tried to coach the guys and remind the guys and the new guys don't rake this too much. Let's not, you know, I'm, I run a little bit of equipment and I'm not great at it, but that's a benefit because I could never get anything perfect. So it's always imperfect as, as I run a little bit of equipment, especially a bulldozer. I, 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 I have great respect for the guys that run bulldozers all day because it, I, I am I am not wanting to sit in a seat. I want to be moving all the time. So we remind them to not be perfect. And if they want to see something that's really imperfect, throw me on a bulldozer and it'll be a mess. But that's imperfection. And and we try to plan that in and tell the guys, do not rake, do not finish, do not box blade things too much. We just don't want it so perfect. Mm-hmm. That's like that famous Alistair McKenzie quote, you know, if you want a if you want an interesting green, hire the biggest fool in town and tell him to make it flat. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, 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 you know, Pete, I think, had a comment uh, and I can't remember the name he used, but suffice it to say, he people would ask, well, you know, Piner's number two, whose greens are those? And he would say, well, Joe Smith. And what do you mean, Joe Smith? We thought that was Don Ross. Well, you know, Joe was on the rake and the shovel and. He was part of the crew and, you know, Ross gave him an idea and he just went with it. So, so much of what we do, I try to encourage because, again, I've learned it from Pete and Bobby Weed. I try to encourage these guys to interject their ideas and their thoughts so that we don't do something that's just repetitive. And given that era and, you know, his contemporaries, Tom Fazio, Robert Trent Jones, it seemed like, you know, Pete. Die had a you know a distinctly different management style. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how working with Pete and what that was like, uh, you know, in the field. Well, it was interesting, and you know, it was his quote that said during some hard economic times, you know, if I needed to pare down my staff, I'd have to get a divorce because it was just he and Alice, <laughs> and that that's a model that a lot of us that have worked with the Die family or connected with them in one way or another carry to this day um you know we just were kind of free agents and you you've talked to lots of these guys that you know sometimes work with bill and ben or sometimes work with gil hands or you know just kind of in and out um but you know the the times that i worked with pete you know he was high energy um even the last project i helped him with which was in north florida uh he would have been about almost 90 and even at that age, as his health was starting to decline a little bit, he was pretty active uh, in his mind and had new ideas. All It was hard to keep up, you know, physically. He walked very fast and was thrown out ideas. And, you know, I learned long ago from Bill Coor to have a notebook with me everywhere I went. And I do that to this day and, you know, just took notes and so forth. But 
you know, you just never knew what was going to come out. And and for any of us to say we're trying to think like Pete thought, um, it's that's not possible. So you just never knew what was going to come out. And so you look at Harbortown in 1969 or you look at Whistling Straits many years later and they could not be more different looking. But strategically, you can see Pete's thoughts and his ideas about strategy and the way he moved players around with these S holes, uh, making the player work the ball in two directions. So he was always thinking about each golf shot, make sure that if it was left to right, the first shot, the second shot needs to be right to left, uh, making sure par threes were all in a different direction, making sure there was balance on the golf course. So not one particular type of player could uh, take advantage of a golf course because of his particular strength. Um, and I think you've seen how his golf courses hold up to this day. Yeah. I think that's the thing is like you, you often see Pete Dye characterized as one style, but if you've seen a large body of his work, there are so many, so many different styles, even back to before he made a trip to the British Isles, you know, those right. first like 10 to 12 golf courses he built, like Radrick Hills is one that sticks out to me is so much different than what he built, you know, mm-hmm. in, in late in life, like whistling straights. Right. Or the golf club in Ohio. That's mm-hmm. quite different. I'm fortunate to be working on Delray Dunes in Boynton Beach, Florida. That was their first golf course in Florida and uh, quite different. So, yes, you, you're, you're right. He was influenced by his trips to Scotland and, and whatnot. And some of that became his sort of stamp and signature. But even after that, they they all ebbed and flowed and, and changed and were site specific. So that that was a gift that he doesn't know he gave me. And Bobby Weed doesn't know he gave me, but the ability to just think differently and and try to pull out something about the site that can be unique uh, is is a gift. Hey, one of the courses that you've worked with with the love uh, worked with uh, worked on with the loves is the plantation course at uh, mm-hmm. Sea Island, where they mm-hmm. obviously host uh, every year as the uh, second course for the RSM. I'm interested, uh, you know, what have you taken away about the professional game uh, from that project? Well, so uh, when it comes to that particular project, you you know, we were confined for space. There's only so much you could do as far as lengthening the golf course. And again, it is a resort golf course. So trying to balance those two things is always foremost in our mind. Mm -hmm. But we've really, uh, uh, and, and we're all fans of of having the players, particularly the good players, uh, challenged at the green. And if we can challenge them at the green, that's really where we we can make them think. And so we thought a lot about challenging these guys at the green. Mm-hmm. How, how, how specifically do you challenge players at the green where it remains more playable for the resort guest? Well, so, and again, I would go back to some of uh, Pete's, Pete's thoughts uh, fairway cut around greens, uh, and it's sort of a sort of a strange thing to think about this, but I very much believe that shortcut is easier for the bad player, but harder for the good player. And why I say that is the bad player just wants to get something up on the green somehow. Uh, the good player is going to sit there with multiple clubs and say, "Hey, uh, what's my option here?" And once you get to get them thinking. And Pete used to do a lot of of that with intimidating water or something. But once you get them thinking, you sort of got them a little bit. 
uh, because they have so many options. A bad player can just put it up there and they're all good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the ocean course would be a good example of of challenging around the greens where obviously it's it's tough everywhere with the wind, especially when the wind blows, but uh with those greens built up, you know, the all the the good players, the professionals are going to have to worry about missing short, long, right, left and the ball getting mm-hmm. further away from them because the, most of the greens are perched up with shaved edges. And then green shapes. I mean, one of the things Pete was great at is not only contour, but the actual shape of the green so that you could tuck a hole location. Um, you could bring the hole out to a more open spot. Miss Alice always wanted the front of the green as open as possible, depending on the length of the hole. And so that's good for the resort player, the average player. Uh, but you could sort of tuck hole locations here and there behind something a bunker or a bulkhead or something and uh, challenge the, the, the good player that way. So we, we very much built a golf course at the plantation course that was, and our goal right up front was to somewhat emulate the older style of Rainer and McDonald, uh, Banks a little bit, and Pete, and sort of mesh those together because Pete was a Seth Rainer fan. And would say that very openly. Yeah, and and I think you know one of the neat things too, you know, just in in terms of shapes. But you know, with with when you're talking about Pete, uh, is always a look at the orientation and the angles that mm-hmm. the, that these unique shapes sit on, and how right. those you know, if, if you just go to you know a Google Earth and and Google a you know Pete Dye course, and you just look at the way they they orient. They're so varied across the board, and in like what you talked about earlier with thinking about each shot, I think that's one of the things that stands out with the with the way Pete built golf courses is is the orientation in the greens and how that dictated everything back to the tee. Absolutely, and he was very keen on left to right, right to left, left to right, right. You know, over and over again, and he he sort of without knowing it would reveal some of his thoughts about how a green should sit and, you know, what aspect of the green should be closer to the player and what aspect should be hidden from the player and that sort of thing. And so it, you know, from an early age, early twenties, it started to get me thinking strategically rather than just the, the mechanics of building a golf course. Although Pete was, he, he told me from the beginning, get your rear end in a ditch. You need to learn how to build a golf course from the ground up, which is what I did. Our first project in Hawaii, I was very much in, in the dirt and continue to be. I mean, we, we've learned to be golf course builders and designers and all of that together. Um, but so much of his thoughts were just in me and people like Bobby Weed and other folks that have worked with, with Pete way more than I have, have that strategic thought at all times it's not just a landscape feature it's not just a construction project we're thinking strategically with every shot mm-hmm. that's was there is there anything you know from the plantation course and obviously you'll get to see your work here at, at kiowa um in a couple in in a week but is there anything that happened at the plantation course that you maybe took away from watching the pros play that you know you carried to Kiowa or you'll carry to a future thing like, huh, you know, I, 
I thought this might work or this worked way better than I, I imagined. Is there anything that, you know, any revelation that's come o- over the last few years of watching that tournament be played? A, a, a little bit. And, and again, my, my concern is we, we, we just we're, we're losing the distance battle. Uh, the equipment, all equipment is so good. Um, and, you know, what do you do about length? And so that's why Harbortown, or to some degree, a, a little bit lesser degree, but to some degree, the plantation course is, is good to challenge the tour pros because there are certain places they really can't just hit driver and swing as hard as they can. We're okay with these guys not hitting 10 or 12 drivers uh, every round. Um, and, and again, Harbortown is a perfect example of that was just at, at the tournament there and they visited there quite a bit and learned a lot. Uh, every time I've been watching these professionals and how they navigate that golf course. So yeah, just going back and going back and going back. I mean, we, we just don't have enough property to do that. Now the ocean course because of the wind and because we have the property, you, you know, they will never set it up as all the way back on every tee because that's not appropriate. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things that you, you made a point about not getting too fast, I think one of the things that you lose when the greens get really fast is like you lose the advantage of, of being able to reward aggressive, you know, putting, you know, and when you Correct. have to play defense on every putt, you know, that's not, you know, you're worried about an uphill putt rolling three and a half feet by like that's not, you know, necessarily rewarding the person that put themselves in the position where they can be aggressive, you know, and I think that's something. And then also right. you reduce the amount of places that you can put a pin. Cor- correct. And and over time, we're reducing the contour we can put in a green. And one of the things that is neat about the ocean course, and I've, I've spent a lot of time over the last few years with George Fry, who was the original superintendent and helped Pete build the ocean course. And because those greens are um, pospolum, there's an opportunity for us to keep Pete's contours because the pospolum won't get too fast. And we're at a seaside location. And so they'll they'll not be crazy fast. And so some of these more contoured greens are okay there. And it's refreshing. Now, they probably will be 12 at the fastest, which for you and I is probably pretty quick. But for these professionals coming off of Augusta National and other places where the speeds are probably higher than that, um, it's a neat difference. And as long as the wind is there, but not crazy, um, it will have an influence. And so that's one of the things that, that, that Mark and Davis and I talk a lot about is let's put slope and contour back in the greens. And we've done that for some years now even for tour events like like the one at the plantation. Let's put some contour back in the greens and let's maybe slow them a little bit uh, so that we add to the difficulty for, for the great player um, right at the greens because they're just going to hit it as far as they want to, but let's make them think. And thinking is hard work. So what are you, with the with the PGA a week away, what are you most looking forward to uh, at the tournament and with the course specifically? I, I spoke with the folks down there just the other day, and, and, and the place looks great. Uh, George said he thought it uh, was presented as well as ever. Uh, Jeff Stone is the superintendent there. So, obviously, there's aspects of the competition. There's aspects of how the golf course looks. What we were thinking, you know, for example, uh, we were able to add length and, and, and move back the tee on an 18. 
so that they can use that back tee previously uh, they couldn't use the back tee because of the grandstands and whatnot so we got it out of the way and hopefully it, it will challenge the players more than it did before and they will have some longer clubs coming into that green we deepened some bunkers which is just natural you know in that setting sand blows and sand blows and the bunkers sort of rise up some get shallower some get deeper um so just every aspect to be honest with you uh we're uh, i'm looking forward to, to seeing and and getting the reaction from from the owner and you know hosting and it will be interesting to see a, a lightly attended uh, event and, and i don't say that in a bad way or a good way it's just there'll be less folks there as the pga of america has announced I think that the thing, the reality is obviously revenue wise, it's not a good thing for the PGA, but right. for, for spectator viewing, if you're on site, it's better. And then also if you're watching on TV, you get to see more of the golf course. Like, I think that was one of the big revelations people had last year when there were no fans is how much more of the golf course you got to see without all the infrastructure and there'll That's be right. substantially less infra- infrastructure. So you get to see more of the long views out of the ocean course. If you were going to pick out out, you know, for our audience, one hole in particular that you think is going to be compelling to watch. You know, when some when the telecast goes and now over to X hole, you know, who what what's a hole that people should maybe perk up and, and make sure they watch a little bit of golf on? Well, uh, uh, I, I would always say seventeen, and I've been asked that question before, especially if it's windy. Now we were able to, uh, one of the things we did is replace just about all the bulkheads and, and bridges and so forth there. And as part of replacing the bulkhead on 17, and, and Pete had changed that green some years ago a little bit, we were able to get the green closer to the bulkhead and whatnot. So we'll we'll see where they put the whole location. But I, I, I would say 17, you know, it's right there by the ocean. It obviously is sitting on the water um, and it's near the end of, of the, day it's near the end of the tournament um so it's pretty compelling as you might remember in the Ryder cup it was very compelling Mm -hmm. in those days and hopefully you know there'll be just enough wind that there'll be a a substantial club hit into to that green which today might be a five iron uh i would be i would just love to see somebody hitting five iron or or more amongst the leaders in the in the in the event yeah, yeah, especially if you get a get the right wind. Having been out there so much, you know, can you talk a little bit about the variability of the wind out there? Uh, obviously, a lot of people don't get to spend, you know, a lot of days at Kiwa. You know, most people can't afford afford it. But you know, like having spent a lot of time out there, is the wind as variable as people say it is? Well, I would say sure, especially if fronts come through and whatnot. And I would think May would be a little more active front wise. You know, when you're there in the summer. It seems like it's kind of calm and hot and humid in the morning. And then as things warm up a little bit, the, the breezes get going, the ocean breezes. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm not as familiar with the, uh, with the prevailing wind. But, you know, the prevailing wind may or may not matter because at the moment you're hitting the golf shot, where, where is the wind coming from? Because it, it can swirl, it can die, it can rise. Um, and it's all about the, the moment. One of the things that I think that's cool about there out there about the wind, and this goes back to you know Pete's design, is just how you know you play in the same direction, right? For so many stretches out there, because of the long narrow nature of the site, you know you play out and you play back, and then you play back in. 
and but how different each shot moves with the wind. You're playing in the same direction, but you know you you might be having a a four o'clock wind and then a you know a two o'clock wind, and mm-hmm. you know how it just tweaks all all the time, and you never seemingly can get settled. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely correct. And most of the unsettled nature is because of what Pete has put in front of you, regardless of what what the wind is, and that's. Partly why, you know, he does this figure eight routing quite often. If you look throughout his career, the figure eight routing is very well known amongst the golf courses he's done to put hazards on one side of the of the golf hole for several holes. And then you flip over and the hazard on the other side. And I can think of PGA West. I can think of Teeth of the Dog. And you just go on and on this sort of somewhat figure eight routing that gives you that different win and gives you that different angle all the time. And he, with his hand, has added additional angles and additional unsettled things that are going on in your brain to try to overcome what this next shot looks like, even if you're in the middle of the fairway. Mm-hmm. Um, so to to move uh, subjects on, you guys are just wrapping up a uh restoration and then a you know a redesign in the sense of you're going to a short course at belmont golf club which is mm-hmm. a old uh aw tillinghast it was later worked on by donald ross public municipal facility in henrico county virginia which is just outside of richmond uh it was the site of a the only major championship ever held in virginia and it was won by a virginian sam sneed um, right. obviously a a huge uh you know a municipal win for municipal golf in the sense of, you know, it was a golf course that was very much, you know, in peril. They were looking at alternative options and, and, uh, the first tee there was obviously a big part of getting that, the ball rolling. Uh, tell us a little bit about that project and, and working, uh, in, in, at Belmont. Well, it was just a very, very rewarding project. They were in the early stages of, of submitting their proposal and, and, teamed up with us, with Love Golf Design, um, and said, hey, before we go too far, what do you think about this idea? It was 18 holes only. That was all there was, 18 holes in the clubhouse. No driving range. There was one putting green, as I recall, but that was it. They said, we want to take those 18 holes and create 12 full-scale holes, six short course holes, a putting course, lots of practice area, and a driving range because our programs, the first tee, and they have now three facilities, our programs need those kinds of facilities. We think the city needs various options to bring people into the game, fast playing options, or somebody can stay here all day long and have their fill of all the golf they want. And we immediately said, absolutely. With all all that we're doing, in regards to short courses and alternate facilities and all that the, the world is seeing now uh, over the last 10 or so years with these alternative kind of routings and short courses, et cetera, we absolutely think that would be the right thing to do. No qualms about it whatsoever. So we teamed up with them. Their group was selected and it all went fairly quickly. We were, we were under construction in the midst of COVID on May the 4th of last year. And it will open May the 24th of this year. Um, and it was it is just one of the most enjoyable projects, except for some weather issues. But we had to get creative. And 
we, we studied what we could about the old Tillinghast and some of Ross's changes. And we tried to hone in on an era for a Tillinghast. And, and ironically, Wingfoot was the host of the U.S. Open last year. So that was somewhat of a, an influence. And as you know, uh, Davis won there and, and Mark has played there a lot. He and Mark have played there quite a bit. And uh, we had some greens that were really interesting and just put them back, just rebuilt them and put them back and tried to infuse a, a more Parkland style look to the, to the golf course, removed a bunch of trees. But we were very keen about creating uh, these alternate facilities. So we wiped out several golf holes to create a new driving range, which is going to be fantastic for anybody, uh, but particularly uh, the first tee programs. We did take a couple of golf holes and convert them into a six-hole short course, which we took inspiration from some of Tillinghast's, I guess you would say, more famous or more notable par threes out there. They're not exact copies, but like the Reap Hole and Tiny Tim, and we have sort of our version of the Dual Hole from San Francisco Golf Club, um, and tried to be faithful to what we saw on the big course uh, where bunker locations were. And like I said, the greens and, and so forth. And so Mark is actually there as we speak and we'll be back in two weeks for the, for the opening. Um, and it was just the greatest thing ever uh, that we've been involved in. And it will, it will serve that community. Well, I, I I've said this many times. We've all said this. I wish that facility was in my backyard. It's on a hundred acres. It does everything we need golf to do today. And for the future, it, it, it's it's not the end all be all for the, the club folks and meaning country club folks and uh, big daily feed facilities and that sort of thing. But it is the perfect complement to bring people into the game and keep people interested in the game. Yeah, you know, I uh, I've I've got mixed emotions about. Obviously, I, I'm a I'm a history nut. I'm a I would have loved to see the 18 holes of the original 18 somehow restored, but obviously, you know, it all comes down to clients and and they wanted range and and it makes sense for the first tee. It, it's just a new iteration of 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 the place, and it's cool to hear that you tied in a lot of the historic, you know, giving it that sense of place. You know, it, it is a I highly recommend uh, people going. Uh, it's it's so convenient. I mean, it's right on yes. off of I ninety five. It's in Richmond. It's a great place to visit because you've got that big you've got that big town. You've got you know mm. things to do, but also you can get out and play a quick round of golf if you're there for whatever it may be. We, we we've seen a lot of uh you know former tour pros be get into the golf uh design business mm -hmm. you know it, and obviously there's been a mixed bag of results how is uh how involved is Davis with the with the business and you know what what's unique about him his view on on golf courses and uh you know maybe some of his personal preference uh across you know the country world and tour you know. And it's interesting because, yes, Davis is involved and he has a passion and that passion just is growing. Um, so as, as it is with all of us, it seems like if you have a passion for something, it just grows over time. The other thing that's interesting is, you, you know, he's obviously the most accomplished player in the group. Mark is great as well. And I can just maybe sort of kind of maybe keep up. <laughs> but Davis is the most concerned about the average player. Uh, he, you know, he, he's played, a, played a lot of pro-ams. 
That's correct. And we have all grown up doing something in the golf business. All, all of us, from the shop to the maintenance to design to construction to, you know, we have a varied background, but it's all aspects of, of golf. And he, he knows the business well, as do the rest of us. So he's concerned about the customer, whoever that is. There's only whatever it is, 2,000 players in the world that can play at the very highest level. And then all the rest of us want to have fun. And so he's always concerned about that. So, you know, it, it's funny because we're always sort of pushing the envelope a little bit and he's sort of reining us in a little bit. Uh, but it's a very collaborative thing. And I think the best golf courses are built somewhat in a collaboration. It, no golf course is built by it, itself or by one person anyway, because of all that it takes to build a golf course. But when it comes to making decisions, collaborations are, are great. You don't want the committee to be too big, but it seems like the three of us mesh really well. Mark and Davis are very different as brothers. And of course, I'm a brother from another mother, I guess, <laughs> to some degree. Uh, so, you know, we all have our various uh, uh, perspectives and it, it seems to work well. But yeah, Davis seems to, to, to love it. He loves playing on equipment and he, he can run a bulldozer better than any of us. That he's, he's the one worried about the uh, average player more than the rest of us. And his mom, if his mom can play it, then everybody will be good. I feel like that's such a good way to to think about stuff is, you know, especially if you're with good players and they don't understand what you're talking about with playability is like, hey, you know, if you if I put your grandpa or grandma here, would they be able to hit this shot? Like what, you know, imagine hitting this shot, you know, with a three wood and and they'd be like, oh, oh, yeah, that'd be hard. It's like, yeah, that's, you know, you got to think about this stuff. Oh, yes. And. You, you know, that, that jogged my memory about something. So you mentioned the plantation course. One of the things we did there, of course, they have lots of practice, and now we have a putting course there, and they have lots of options at, at Sea Island. We added a sixth tee. Uh, you, some folks call it a family tee, but it's a little under 4,000 yards. And one of our clients called us after having played that golf course. Uh, he, he, at the time, was probably 78, and then his wife w- was as well. And he said, hey, we played the plantation course for the first time, and my wife had the greatest time. And here's what she said. She said, hey, Bill, you guys get to move up a tee as you age from the back tees, and you just keep moving forward. And us ladies, we have a forward tee, and that's it. Well, these guys have built a new tee for me, um, and she played this this 3,950-yard tee and had the greatest time ever. She was so happy. And if mama's happy, that makes everybody happy. So it, it, it was one of those things that we have done on golf courses, but got very tangible feedback from someone that owns golf, that knows golf, that loves golf. And, you know, he said, we're going to put those on every one of our golf courses if we don't already have them. And so that's something that at Belmont, for example, is a great uh, addition, you know, and, and we learned just from that that scenario that the super seniors not just the kids but the super seniors love that forward tee they can keep playing golf until they're 100 from that forward tee i think that i think good players should go play the forward tee it's a, Try it's to a shoot great 59. exactly <laughs> teach yourself how to go super deep and it's right. it, you'll find it's really hard because then you get yourself all these weird 40 yard pitches and it's a great practice yeah. like i that's some of the best practice is going up to the very yes. forward tee and trying to shoot as low as you can yeah. 
Yeah. Well, we're excited to see Belmont when I could get out there and uh, excited to see more of your guys' work. Uh, you know, well, I think you. the plantation course I haven't been, but it looks really interesting. And, uh, you know, hopefully a, a great PGA championship at Kiowa. And uh, you're on on Instagram. People can find you at Scott with one T Sherman. Uh, easy, easy handle to find and uh, keep keep you updated on all of, uh, all the places you're working at. Well, well, thank you so much, Andy. And I, I just so, as I said, I was so thrilled to, to work there at the ocean course and somewhat circle my professional life uh, in, a, in a complete circle in some way and just humbled by the opportunity. I told Roger Warren when he called me, I, I was almost in tears. I just could not believe, never expected such a phone call. So we're we're thrilled to go. I'm going with some family members and, and we'll 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 just take it all in as best I can and, and savor the moment. Hopefully it's the uh, you're just doing the first eight of the figure eight. So you're not co- not done with the circle. Right. You've got a whole other circle coming. Yeah, we'll back. see, yes, we'll see. And I appreciate that optimism. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Scott. Thank you much. Good to talk to you. for listening to this episode of the fried egg podcast today's episode was edited by meg atkins and garrett morrison a quick reminder be sure to check out our events we've got events across the country um we are sold out on a bunch of them but we still have a few spots at rolling green in philadelphia a great william flynn design um as well as davenport and uh, that's just outside Chicago. It's uh, it's right on the Illinois-Iowa border. And that is a, one of the best Allison golf courses in the, in the country. So check out our events. You can find them at uh, on thefriedegg.com. There's a tab for events. Go there. You'll find information about all of them. And we hope to see you out at events this year in 2021. Thanks for listening and uh, talk to you soon. Thank you.